Welcome to another edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. Andy Bullbarch with AM 930 WEOL and 100.3 FM. And I'm joined as always by Scott Petrek, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and of course, BrownZone.com. Scott, great to be joined by you as always. And well, it's been a few days since we last caught up and did one of these. Now we have a little more clarity as to what direction the front office is moving. It seems like things are really kind of coming together. And, you know, it's amazing what a difference just a couple of days can make, Scott. But, you know, on today's show, obviously there's a ton to talk about with the new general manager and Andrew Barry. The Kareem Hunt situation has taken a turn for the worse for him, so there's a lot of question as to what the Browns are going to do there. And we'll also dive into Super Sunday. So we've got a full plate here on today's edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. But Scott, let's begin with the structure of this front office now. Andrew Barry is the new GM, and it, it seems like the fan base is a little mixed on Andrew Barry. You're 100% right, Andy. I was, you know, I've been scrolling through Twitter. I mean, that's how much a part of that is my life now. But I just happened to be doing it a few minutes ago, and you see a lot of negative reaction. And then I think there are some people that are okay with it and accept it. And I get it. And the thing that Andrew Barry is going to have to address, and he's scheduled to talk to reporters next Wednesday, so February 5th, is the role he played in 1-31. in 31. Because he was here. Not only was he here when Sashi Brown was running the show, Andrew Barry was pretty much his top football guy. Now, Andrew Barry is about 29 at the time, and we can talk about you know inexperience and youth, and obviously that plays a role in You'd hope he's learned things in the years in between and the one year with John Dorsey and the one year in Philadelphia. But until proven otherwise, he is connected, fairly or not, to the Corey Coleman draft pick and the Sean Coleman draft pick and trading down from the quarterbacks. Now, I would say it was Sashi Brown's show, and Sashi Brown made the final decisions. And Hugh Jackson, the coach, had influenced on the drafts, but Andrew Barry was part of it. So I can't speak to exactly how big a part of it. I know he didn't make the final decision, so I'm not, I'm not ready to just tag him with one and 31, like a scarlet letter, but he was part of that. And when we talk to him next week, he's going to have to talk about maybe learning from those mistakes, what role he played in it. Um, and I think it's also important to note the Browns are at a different point in their organization, at least they should be, right? When Sasha Brown took over, his plan was to tear it down to whatever degree. I don't believe he wanted to go 1-31, but that happened to happen. Um, that happened to be the result. But he, he got rid of, he let free agents walk away, right? He cut veterans. They cut the roster a little bare bones, stockpiled a bunch of draft picks, stockpiled a bunch of salary cap space, and the organization right now is still has those, right? They still have a bunch of salary cap space. They still have a few extra draft picks, although those come from when John Dorsey was GM. My point is the roster's in a better spot. They're a younger team. They're poised to, in my opinion, contend. And owner Jimmy Haslam agrees with that. And he told us that when we talked to him the day Kevin Stefanski was announced as its coach, this is not another rebuild. And he said when he talked to these coaching candidates, they'd agree with him. That, yes, the talent is there on this roster. 
to win. So I think Andrew Barry comes in with a completely different approach than Sashi Brown did. Andrew Barry is looking to add to this roster. He's not looking to subtract. He's not focused three or five years down the road. I believe he is and should be focused on 2020. Now, it's not all in for 2020, but the goal is, in my opinion, and I think he'll affirm this next week, is to go to the playoffs in 2020. And I think that is, even if Jimmy Haslam won't articulate that, I believe that's his expectation because it certainly was in 2019, and we saw what happened, but the talent is still there. The Browns aren't losing many of their key pieces. So I understand why the fan base is mixed. I, you know, and I've been through a bunch of these reboots, and so the fans, and so have you. I think you have to give the new regime time to succeed or fail, and that goes for Andrew Barry. It goes for Kevin Stefanski. And I know the answer is getting long, but I also add that you know Andrew Barry was here for three seasons. He is a respected guy. He earned the trust and the confidence of the Haslam's. And we can talk about the Haslam's hiring record, so maybe that's not worth as much as it should be. But I do feel like he is, Andrew Bears, a guy that's universally respected, universally liked. He had a nice run with the Colts before he came to the Browns. Then he went to Philly. And, yeah, he's the youngest known GM ever at 32. And that could be cause for concern. But I also think it speaks of his intelligence, his ability to collaborate, work well with others. I think he has a natural relationship with Paul Podesta, the chief strategy officer, Kevin Stefanski, the new coach. So I understand the, the consternation, but I also think there are reasons to look at this higher and look at the alignment with Podesta and Stefanski and say this has a chance to succeed. And one of the main reasons is because all these guys are smart. 32-year-old general manager, 37-year-old head coach. Do you think that the youth is something that works in the favor of the Browns in this scenario, or do you think that this is somewhat of a detriment? And I know that's not really an answer we're going to have for a while here, but at least on the surface when you study this, Scott, given the body of work of both guys, where do you fall on this? Well, uh, my first reaction is that it's a little bit scary because this is a team that doesn't have any history success. And not only organizationally, right? They haven't been to the playoffs since 2002. They haven't won a playoff game since the 1994 season. So there's no track record here. There's no base, right? A rock of an organization, you look back and say, hey, well, we did this four years ago, and look how well it turned out. There's none of that. So we talked about this when they were doing the coaching search. I think there's a comfort level in hiring somebody who's done it the job before, and had success. And neither of these guys have done that. And it's not even an age thing. It's more of a experience thing. And that's why Mike McCarthy would have been my hire as coach. Because he's got the Super Bowl on his record. He can say, look what I've done, and the players can be impressed by it. So I think the youth movement and the 32 for Andrew Barry and the 37 for Kevin Stefanski is scary for that reason. That they've never done it, and this is an organization that needs – this is an organization that has never done it either. And it's hard for all this newness to turn into winning. Having said that, being young, I don't think, is necessarily a detriment. I like the enthusiasm. You like the energy. You like the fresh approach. You figure they won't be beaten down just by some 
early losing if that happened to happen. Um, and, and you look to San Francisco, and you know obviously they're in the Super Bowl Sunday. And Cal Shanahan had never been a head coach before, and John Lynch had never been a GM before. So, and look at them; they're in the Super Bowl, whatever, three years later. So. It's not the end of the world that these guys are so young and don't have experience, and I think it does give you hope that, hey, if they struck on something here, right, if this combination is what the Haslam's hope it can be, then look out, right, for the next 10, 20 years, who knows long. They can keep working together, and maybe this can be the long-term solution, but I don't think you can get, if there's any way to get around the unknown that comes with youth and inexperience. How concerning is it at this point in the process that, you know, Andrew Barry still kind of putting his team together? You know, news came down a little bit earlier today that Alonzo Highsmith no longer with the organization. Browns at the re- time of the recording of this podcast still trying to figure out what to do with Elliot Wolf. You know, this is a, a really, really important time, clearly when it comes to scouting. And, you know, I don't know that there are many names out there the Browns could go out and hire to be a part of Andrew Barry's team because look, a lot of times, names in the scouting, whole scouting regime, they aren't necessarily big names or names that are going to resonate with fans, so to speak. But, you know, is it concerning that we are at a very, very important time in that process and he's just now putting that team together? I think it is, to a degree. Um, that's what happens when you have this kind of turnover. And we've been through it so many times, right? The Browns have been through it so many times. And it's just it feels like you're always half a step or a step behind. And maybe it's even more than that. The teams that have the continuity, you know, the Pittsburghs, the Ravens, the Patriots. And, and, you know, I keep referring to those teams, but those are the teams that have the continuity. Those are the Browns rivals. And, you know, there's no big changes that go on there. Or when they do, you know, I mean, Ozzie Newsom hands it off to, you know, Nick DaCosta and it's like, oh, smooth sailing, you know, um, because, the Costa had been around forever, and it was kind of a seamless transition where the Browns don't have that. Nothing they do is seamless. So I think it is, I think it is a detriment. Um, I think that's just the way of the world when you make such significant changes. Um, you know, the most of the scouting department will stay the same, at least through the draft. Now you lose, you lose Alonzo Highsmith, that's, would have been, if they kept the same structure, he would have been Andrew Berry's number three, right, with Elliot Wolf the number two, and we don't know if Elliot Wolf's going to stay or go. So those would be big losses. Alonzo Highsmith is a significant loss. Now, I don't know if Andy, Andrew Berry will fill that spot soon. You know, I mean, John Dorsey was able to get Elliot Wolf and Alonzo Highsmith from Green Bay in January in two, of 2018. And that helped, right? They had, the, they had the number one pick and the number four pick in the draft. And those guys were together as a team, and they went through that draft process. I don't know if Andrew Barry's looking for someone that he knows will come in right away or he has to wait till after the draft. So there's certainly some uncertainty there. And then you add on top of that the fact that we're kind of late in the process, right? I mean, John Dorsey took over in December from Sashi Brown, and that gave him a head start. He could evaluate the roster you know, he could get started on the free agency, the combine, the draft prep, all that. And now Andrew Barry comes in. We're almost in February. He's making decisions about his personnel staffs. Director of college scouting, Steve Malin, also left today. 
Um, and that's a big role in any personnel department. So I, I think that is reason to be concerned. Now, it's not the end of the world, but these are things that Andrew Barry will have to work through. And, you know, yes, it's a benefit that he was here in 2018 because he knows the scouts, right? He's only been gone a year. He knows the scouts. He knows Elliot Wolf. If Elliot Wolf stays, they worked together before. He knows the roster pretty well. I'm sure he's been preparing for this job, you know, for the last month because he knew there's a chance he could take this job. So I'm sure he knows the new additions to the roster. So it's not starting over from scratch, but it's not the ideal position to be in. Scott, shifting gears now and getting into the whole Kareem Hunt situation. I know that last week we didn't have a chance to dive too deep into this, but you know now the audio has surfaced from the incident last week where he was pulled over in Rocky River, and it's become a pretty hot topic with Kareem Hunt because now with another new regime in place, you know this one didn't bring him on board. So you know there really aren't many ties here. It's really interesting with Kareem because by all accounts, at his tenure with the Browns, he's done just about everything right. But if it was his first incident, it probably wouldn't be all that big of a deal. But, you know, this certainly is far from that. Do you get the impression that with Kareem Hunt, he is still skating on thin ice? Or do you think that that ship has already begun to sink? That's a great question. And I think you hit the key the most key point right off the bat when you said the people that brought in Kareem Hunt are no longer here. And I just don't think you can overlook that as the jumping off point. Right? John Dorsey drafted Kareem Hunt in Kansas City. He knew him probably as well as anybody in the league. And it was no surprise that if someone were going to re-sign or sign Kareem Hunt after the Chiefs cut him, that John Dorsey would be near the top of the list, right? I mean, as soon as he got cut, that's one of the first things we talked about in the media was, oh, Kareem Hunt, could he wind up here, right? So when it happened, it wasn't a shock. But now that number one supporter is no longer here. Freddie Kitchens, who was a Kareem Hunt supporter and was on board with the signing, is no longer here as coach. So I think that is a great unknown. Having said that, I, I think there's a few things here. You know, he's restricted free agent. So the Browns can control him. And if somebody, if they put a tender on him and another team makes him a contract offer, then it's up to the Browns whether or not they choose to match. So to me, the likely scenario here is they put a tender on him. And the question is, is it a first-round tender, which, you know, looking up something last year, the first-round tender paid about $4.4 million for the next season. Or do you put a second-round tender, which was just over $3 million? Now, to me, either of those is a bargain for the kind of player Kareem Hunt is. So if you really want to bring him back, you put the first-round tender on him, you wind up paying him, whatever, $4.5 million, assuming nobody else is going to give you a first-round pick for Kareem Hunt, which I don't think they would. So then you say, okay, he's going to play for us in 2020 for $4.5 million. And then we'll figure it out after that. And he'll probably become unrestricted. And you let him go because you can't pay two running backs. And you already have Nick Chubb. That makes a lot of sense. Or you can pay him the three-plus million dollars. Or you can put him the second-round tender on him. And then teams might be interested. And then they make him an offer, and you get a second-round pick back. 
or you decide whether or not you want to match, or you trade, whatever, whatever you do after you put the tender on. So that's a decision the Browns have to make, because if they want to keep him, it's easy. You just put the first-round tender on him. If you are willing to let him go but want that draft pick back, then you can put the second-round tender on him and think, okay, somebody might, another team might come and get him. And that'll be one of the key decisions Andrew Barry has to make. Um, in my opinion, I, I can see both sides of it. I tend to think if, you can, if you're comfortable with Kareem Hunt as a person, right, off the field, then keep him for $4.5 million and don't give up some of your talent, right? If you're trying to make this push in 2020, give Kevin Stefanski, give Baker Mayfield as many offensive weapons as you can, then it just makes sense to me to keep Kareem Hunt when you have plenty of salary cap space. It's not an overwhelming contract. Nick Chubb's not making much as a second-round pick, right, still on his rookie contract. Um, go ahead and keep him. If you're uncomfortable with Kareem and don't think you can trust him off the field, then give him that second-round tender and try to get a second-round pick back. As far as the traffic stop, you know, I watched all 46 minutes of the dash cam video, and to me there are a couple big takeaways there. He lied to the police officer a few times, and that's not a good sign. Um, you know, he said he would fail. The officer asked him, if you took a test, would you fail it? And he said, yeah. That's not a great sign. I know it's the off season. I know NFL players smoke marijuana. Um, to me, that's not a huge deal breaker. It comes down to more the choices he's making and the choice to have the marijuana in the car with him, the choice to be speeding when you know you have the marijuana in the car with you, right? Coming out of the chute, lying to the officer about, it wasn't my marijuana, and then kind of admitting it later. Those are all red flags, um, and I get that. And, I, and if you look at Kareem's history and the fact that he was suspended for the two off-field altercations, including the one where he pushed and kicked a woman, you know, well, has he learned his lesson? Is he making good decisions? And that's a legitimate question to ask. Um, you know, I don't know him well enough. You know, I don't know. I can, you know, John Dorsey used to say you can look into somebody's soul. I can't look into Kareem Hunt's soul. I know that having marijuana in your car is not a deal breaker for me, but if you're trying to move in a new direction as an organization and you've seen other signs that maybe Kareem is making other bad decisions, then that changes the view. Um, but it was interesting listening to that traffic stop because Kareem, my biggest takeaway, was he sounded like a guy scared to death to lose his NFL career. And Having gone through what he went through with the suspension, that, it had to be the first thing that went through his mind. And as he sat in that police cruiser, it, I, I thought the fear was evident in his voice that, you know, and he even said it at something like, it'll be over or I'll be done if this came out and if he failed the test. And, and you just wonder if that's what's going through his head, how does he put himself in a position where that's even possible? Scott, one more quick thing on this topic before we get into the Super Bowl. A lot of people are fixated on what the Browns are going to do about this. Do you imagine that the NFL is going to take any action on this incident? Well, it's interesting. They could, and I have to say this. The NFL's drug policy is, it feels like it's ever-changing. You know, there's, there's a forum, and I've read the forum, and then it feels like it flows, and they can adapt it to a given situation. And we saw that over and over with Josh Gordon. If Kareem Hunt was telling the officer the truth and he has never failed a drug test in the NFL, 
then this should not make him susceptible to a suspension, right? The first drug incident, or if he took a test and failed that, would put him into the drug program, but that doesn't start the suspension. Now, the caveat is, what was the agreement to let him back in the league after the suspension? Was it, you're now susceptible to extra drug testing, and if you fail one of those tests, we can then suspend you? And, and I don't know that. I don't know if there were new restrictions placed on him that aren't placed on any other player because of his personal conduct suspension. My thought is no. My thought is those are two separate things in the collective bargaining agreement. But I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that definitively. Um, but I, and I think it's safe to say that the league will look into this at some degree. Now, if the police don't press any charges, the NFL can still do what, you know, it still has its own leeway. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't think that they would go over the top for something that doesn't even turn into an offense, a criminal offense, especially if it's Kareem Hunt's first drug situation. But like I said, I, it, that's supposed to be private, right? A person's, a player's drug history, if they're in the drug program or not. So, that, so that's an area where it could be gray. But if I were betting, I would say nothing huge comes from this, and he'll be eligible to play week one. But I wouldn't say that 100%. And the league also has a lot going on right now, very clearly some other things they need to take care of, most notably Super Sunday, which is just a few days away. And, Scott, with that, we get into our Super Bowl discussion. I know that you're working on something kind of cool here in the next couple of days that you wanted to discuss also. It's the Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. Some of the offshore sites on the Monday after the conference championship games had the Chiefs laying two and a half. That's come down a little bit, and it seems like it's not going to budge much at this point. Right now it looks like the Chiefs are going to be one-point favorites in this game. What do you make of this Super Bowl matchup? I think it's a great one. Um, you have two really good coaches. You know, I mentioned Kyle Shanahan a little bit earlier, and the Browns fans have experience with him now. Granted, it was cut really short. It was only 2014, and then he talked his way out of town and out of his contract because he saw what a disaster and how dysfunctional this organization was and that they were forced to play Johnny Manziel the year before and all that. But my clearest memory of Kyle Shanahan is, I don't know if it was about week four or week six, and the Browns had gotten off to a pretty good start. And I was... You know, there's certain, I can't remember right what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember being on a plane and writing about Cal Shanahan is a future head coach as I'm flying to a road game somewhere. And I kept thinking to myself, man, is this too early to be writing this? But I felt strongly about how, how smart he was, how he came across like a head coach. Obviously, he has the experience being around his dad, who was a Super Bowl-winning head coach. And he was young at the time. I couldn't tell you if he was 31 at the time or I don't know what he is right now, but young kid, young guy, but thinking this guy's going to be a head coach. And I thought at the time, if the Browns continued to win that year, he could have been a head coach the next season somewhere. You know, that kind of Sean McVay type scenario, which we saw with Sean McVay. So, um, obviously, smart guy. Andy Reid's on the other end of the scale where, again, smart guy really creative offensive game plans for both of them. They do it in different ways. You know, Andy Reid does a lot of flash and movement. 
and Kyle Shanahan's based off the run game in the play action, and he just does it and does it and does it, and he doesn't get away from the run game. And we saw that in Cleveland even when they were losing. You saw that in the NFC Championship when they were winning. They're just going to pound it. And if you can't stop him, you're done. And then if you can, or you think you can, then he'll play action, and he gets guys running wide open. You know, we saw Brian Hoyer have a lot of success with Kyle Shanahan. We saw Taylor Gabriel, the tiny receiver with speed, make big catches because you're running in space because of the play action and what that does to a defense. And then Andy Reid, been there before, right? It's been since 2004, hasn't been to a Super Bowl. Um, one of the nicest guys in the league, well-respected. And that's just the coaching perspective. Then you look at the players, and there's stars everywhere. Starts with Patrick Mahomes, Nick Bosa, Jimmy G, right? Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle. So I think it's going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be a really interesting game, um, entertaining. I think there'll be a lot of points, right? It's a high over-under. I'm a little scared of that, about that because there was a high over-under last year and nobody scored any points. Um, but I don't think that'll be the case this time around. Um, and, and I think it's a difficult game to pick. And before I tell you who I think I'm leaning toward, um, I, I want to hear your take. But I, I just feel like, you know, and obviously the line puts us in this, shows us the way, right? If it's only one-point line, it's a pick em game. But I think there's reason to pick both sides. And I think there's really good reasons to pick both sides. So who do you like in this one, Andy? I'm going to lean towards the 49ers in this game simply because you're right. I mean, I think the reason that it's kind of come down to a point which you're right at this point probably worth just saying it's a pick at this point. Tells you a lot about the matchup. I just think the 49ers defensive front, it's going to make it very, very difficult for the Chiefs all evening long. And that's the kind of matchup, too, where, you know, I didn't realize this about Patrick Mahomes, but he has played in a lot of really close games. You know, even in the games in which the Chiefs don't win, you know, usually you're talking about a score or two, that's it. So I think we're in store for a close game. But for whatever reason, I have a hard time looking past the 49ers. They've beaten some really good teams along the way. And no matter how powerful the offense might be that they face, again, that front four is just so difficult to contend with. And I think if they can make the if they can make the Chiefs one dimensional and I think they've got an opportunity to do that, it's going to be really, really tough to do anything against that defense. So I, I like the Niners, but again I like a very, very close matchup. I like the under in this matchup too. I, I just think that in games like this, things tend to change and teams with the best defenses typically shine in games like this. Yeah, that it, it... I think those are all good points. And if you're going to pick the Niners, the front four is why you pick them. And we've seen that in previous Super Bowls, right? When the Giants were big underdogs to the Patriots both those years, and the Eagles were underdogs to the Patriots, the reason they were able to win is because they had front fours that could pressure and get pressure without blitzing, and then you can do a lot with coverage. And if you can do it to Tom Brady, you can do it to anybody, right? So I get that. And I feel almost like I'm picking despite myself because I'm going to take the Chiefs. And even knowing that, even knowing how good the Niners front four can be, and I'm worried that if the Chiefs fall behind like they did in their first two playoff games, it'll be really hard for them to catch up against this team because the Niners can run the ball, because they can keep the ball you know, time of possession, and because they can get after you. 
You know, if they know Patrick Mahomes is going to have to drop back, yes, he can run around, and yes, he can make plays, and that's what I'm relying on. But Nick Bosa can also go get him, right? And D Ford can go get him, and those two huge tackles inside can go get him. So I think it's important that the Chiefs get off to a much better start, put some pressure on the Niners, put some pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo, take some pressure off Mahomes, and don't let that front four come get him early. So I understand your point, but I can't get past Patrick Mahomes. And to me, he's playing like the best quarterback in the league. He can do so many different things. We saw him run against who they be, or the Titans, against the Titans in that AC title game. Even though he's not 100%, you can tell his ankle, you know, he had the foot injuries and ankle injuries during the season. And he doesn't look 100%, but he still makes the plays when he needs to. He can get away, um, can make every throw on the field, obviously. Um, and he's got some weapons around him. He's got the creative coaching from Andy Reid. I just feel like there's going to be a bunch of points scored, and Patrick Mahomes is going to make one more play to win the game. And I know the Niners might have a more complete team, but I'm going with the quarterback edge. And this isn't a big knock on Jimmy G because I think he's a solid player, but Patrick Mahomes is elite, and I'm going to take elite in this one. Good stuff. We're looking forward to it on Super Sunday. And, Scott, before you wrap up here, you know, we mentioned this a few moments ago. You're putting together a nice little piece on a local angle for Super Sunday. So tell us a little bit about that and what we should be looking for on brownzone.com and, of course, in the Chronicle-Telegram in the coming days. Yeah, Anthony Hitchens, the uh, starting linebacker for the Chiefs, he's one of the playoff captains, is a local kid, Clearview High, right, in Lorraine. Um, It's a great story. And I, I won't give too much away. And the story's been out there. You know, he was he was taken in by a family who took in Anthony and another boy at different times um, when they were like 11, 12 years old. And they stayed with them. And they became their family. So now it's the two brothers, the two Anderson brothers, James Washington and Anthony Hitchens, and their four brothers. And they've been together for now 16 years, I think, 15 or 16 years. And... Anyway, they're all going down to watch the game, and that's exciting enough, right? There's not a whole lot of Lorraine County kids playing the Super Bowl. Um, so you have that ex- aspect to it. But then another layer is Mr. Anderson, Brad, died in December. So there's all these emotions now that Anthony's dealing with, that the family's dealing with. They're going to be down there. It'll be a little bittersweet. But the overriding thing is there's a Lorraine County kid playing in the Super Bowl, and he's a great story. He's not just playing. He's going to have a huge role as the Chiefs try to stop that 49ers running game. And, you know, Anthony's trying to stay focused. That's his thing. I think he's sick of doing interviews. But um, I, I just think it's a really cool story and to revisit, you know, this unique family setup. And that's what they are. They're a family, and the quotes are great, and how Anthony hasn't changed at all since he's been in the NFL. Um, hopefully it turns out okay because it's been fun to talk to these guys. Very, very cool. Well, certainly looking forward to reading that story in the coming days, both at brownzone.com and, of course, in the Chronicle-Telegram. Scott, a pleasure, as always, my man, and you and I will get a chance to do one of these again, hopefully in the next couple weeks. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Scott. Again, that's Scott Petrak, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle-Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and, of course, at brownzone.com. That's going to wrap things up on today's edition of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast. For Scott Petrak, this is Andy Bullbarch saying thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.